Well, good morning, Calvary. Welcome to our worship service. Won't we stand? Let's get ready to lift our voices and lift our hearts to God this morning. Without hope, with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested, and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance When death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace of washes over me You have made me chains I'm a prisoner no more my shame was a ransom he faithfully bore he canceled my debt and he called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began oh your grace so free washes over Criminals cross And darkness rejoiced As though heaven had lost But then Jesus arose With our freedom in hand That's when death was arrested And my life began
service that we're gathered as, as family. And during this time of Lent, we're in a season of Lent as we prepare our hearts for Easter. It's a time of renewal. And so we come before the Lord and we're going to focus today on his grace. We just sang about it. His grace so free washes over me. He has made us new and now life begins with him. And so we're going to focus on his grace. And this morning we have our call to worship. It's going to be again in the form of responsive reading. And so I'll read one, voice, uh, one verse, and, and you respond with the, the following verse. It comes from the 103rd Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Who satisfies you with good so that your your youth is renewed like the eagles. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And altogether, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Who died in 
Crimson 
time we want to be restored to you for those who are just kind of astray and uh, with no real direction we want to be restored by you God we want to be healed uh, of just the things that really uh, press us down that keep us away from you Um, we want to our relationship to be restored to you. And so during this time of Lent, help us to focus on your grace, a grace that we don't deserve, but you give it freely. So thank you for that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. I pray that you will prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for the message today and, and also for the upcoming weeks as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter and just what our faith uh, means to us, what your love and, and your sacrifice means to us. So thank you for all that you have done and all that you are continue, continuing to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take this time to say hello to our neighbors around us. Good morning, Calvary Church. It's good to see you guys. Hope y'all are doing well this Sunday morning. And uh, man, just like we do a lot of times, just want to thank every single person who's uh, serving here and 
helping other people in their journey here at Calvary Church. There's a ton of you who are pressing into, with your time and resources, helping us build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And we could not do it without what a bunch of you are doing. So if you serve here, if you give your time here, if you're helping watch kids or helping watch toddlers not escape from the building or leading a community group or helping on our tech team, we've never had a toddler escape from the building. Just to, <laughs> I just saw some mom get up and hurry. <clears throat> to the room. No, we, you've never lost a toddler, Calvary Church, so set the bar low, right? I mean, set the bar low. So we're really grateful, and there's ongoing ways uh, in this piece of paper. What is this called? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know what would be even more amazing? If everybody here actually enjoyed holding one on their hands on Sunday, because... There's lots of content in here about ways that you can help jump into our vision. How can you help become further involved in our body? How can you grow as a disciple? How can you be all the people? And what ways are there to impact others with God's love and truth? And as a body, we're going to have some information in here and very soon about how we're going to celebrate Easter and Good Friday together and what that looks like. There's information about classes in here, uh, as you know, and there's some things in here about ways that you can help reach and impact others with God's love and truth. There's ways that you can do that financially for people who have needs in our church through our Compassion Fund. And then, um, you know, news cycles are interesting things, right? If we watch the news and we see a story or something happen, uh, if it doesn't personally affect us, we move on pretty quickly. But for the people who that story is their reality, they don't move on. And so there are a countless number of people in Syria and in Turkey who are continuing to feel the ongoing impacts of these earthquakes, and we want to be people who show God's love to them in ways that we can. And so there's information about that if you'd like to reach out and support those needs. So uh, just grab it. Lots of stuff going on. want you to know about it. And <clears throat> it's uh, an exciting Sunday for us today. You may not even know it. But before COVID, one of the amazing things I was so happy that God did here is brought people from other cultures and nationalities and languages. And so prior to COVID, we had some folks who were translating the services into other languages. Um, and that was just so encouraging. And today, for the first time since COVID, we actually, as I'm speaking very rapidly, have somebody who is translating this into Mandarin. And so we're just grateful that People with gifts are using those gifts to help other people who may not understand my redneck, nasally, Yankee, fast-talking, uh, but can man help communicate God's truth in their own language. So that is a blessing that God is doing. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our text and what God has for us this morning. So let me pray. Father, I'm grateful for what you have done at Calvary Church and what you are continuing to do here in our church and in lives and in our communities, and you get the credit for that. Thank you for preserving your word for us so that we can study it, and as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation, God, that is challenging, <clears throat> is confusing, uh, can raise all sorts of emotions. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit helps us understand it and process through it. And so we pray for the Spirit's leading in our time together now. You know why every person's in this room, and you don't waste your word. And so as we open up your text, Father, I pray that your word will grab every single one of us where we are, that we might learn, but also be challenged and live lives that honor and glorify Jesus. And we're grateful for this, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. 
Well, has anybody lived in a part of the country where there's hurricanes? Anybody lived in a part of the country where there's hurricanes? Okay. So, I don't know why people are laughing, but that's okay. So Casey and I, for a bunch of years, about 23, 24-ish years, I guess, lived down in different parts of the southeast. And uh, for a period of those times, we lived in the amazing city of Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Florida, part of it is on the ocean, another part is on the river. It is in Florida. It is in the hurricane zone. And um, back many, 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 many years ago, before there was wrinkles on my face and gray in my hair, uh, I had just started as an attorney at this law firm on this river. You may, I've told you about that with my awesome telescope. And literally within the first few weeks of start, we had just bought a house. We had, I just got into my office, I had it decorated, I had my telescope, I had the dealios on the wall, and it was on the river, and just a few weeks after getting into our house and into this office, there was this massive hurricane that was going to, like, destroy the entire southeast, right? I mean, this thing was churning where they start churnings, and it was of epic proportions, and it was coming, and it was going to be like mega death part two when it hit Florida, right? And so we... I did not like this. I had dreams of my house being destroyed. I had to go into my office that I just set up, and we had to move all these boxes. We had to put all this stuff over the windows. We had to, like, put masking tape and da-da-da. And if you've ever lived in a region where there's hurricanes or other natural disasters, what often happens is you're told that that stuff is coming. You're told that the storm is coming. You're told what's going to happen in the future in order for you to be able to start preparing for it now, right? When we were there, we were told that, hey, in seven days, this hurricane is going to come barreling up the coast. And so people in Jacksonville, Florida, and this whole swath, you better start preparing for it now. And so you start preparing by running to Home Depot or Lowe's or your favorite mom-and-pop place, and you buy the plywood. You prepare for it by making sure that you've got bottled water. You prepare for it by moving the stuff that's outside that can blow around and crash your windows. You prepare for it by checking the batteries in your flashlight. I never do that. You prepare for it by filling your bathtub with water. I've never done that. I don't really understand it. I'm like, whatever, right? But you, but you know what's coming, and the purpose of understanding what's coming in part is so that you can start preparing for it now. And in many ways, I think as we're in our study of the book of Revelation, especially in kind of subject matter like we're in today, the same thing holds true. We're being told what's coming down the road in the future, and as we hear these things about the future, for many of us, there's some steps that we can start to start preparing now. Knowing what's yet to come helps us know and catch a glimpse of what we should be doing now. If you're visiting, if you're new to us, if you're watching us online for the first time, we are slowly trekking through the book of Revelation. We started this in the fall. If you've been here every Sunday, you know we're in the book of Revelation. And if it's your first time in church in a while or your first time in Calvary Church, you know, I don't know if Revelation is the most uh, church growth seeker-friendly thing, but hey, that's where we're there, right? And what we do at Calvary if you're checking us out, is we pick a book of the Bible, and then we walk through that book chapter through chapter, many times verse by verse, and we do that because 
you don't need to hear what I think, right? If there's any benefit to anything in church, one of the big benefits is knowing what God thinks. And whether you believe in God or don't, if you're a follower of Jesus and believe in God and have a relationship with Jesus, man, you want to know what he says. And even if you don't necessarily know if you understand Christianity, there is a huge benefit to knowing what Christians believe and think. And so we go to God's Word, we go book by book, uh, paragraph through paragraph, and we're in the book of Revelation. We're in the book of Revelation because I have been in church for a long time. I have pastored for not quite as long, but I have never sat in a church where we walk through the book of Revelation. And I've never actually taught through it before, even though I thought taught through a lot of books. And so we're in it. <clears throat> I don't necessarily think the world is ending, except as I shared with my family this chat GPT... Microsoft Bing artificial intelligence, it, it might be over the world. I don't know, right? I think drones are going to come eat our eyeballs, but I don't have a verse <clears throat> in Revelation to really say that. So I, I don't think the world's ending, but I think God gave us a book that has a bunch of chapters that we should know what it says. And so we're walking through that. And so the question is, as we think about what's to come uh, today, right, as we hear what's going to come down the road, is there anything we should be doing now as we continue through the revelation, hear what's in the future. The question for many of us this morning will be this, what steps should we take in this moment as we hear about future moments? And, and it, that's what we're going to think about. <clears throat> I'm going to approach it a little differently through Revelation. And as we do in through the next chapter, which is Revelation chapter 9, as we think about that question of what should we be doing in this moment in light of the future moments that we think about, another thing that may be rattling through your brain as we walk through this chapter is things in this story are getting progressively worse and uh, harmful and painful. And it may cause some of you to be like, man, I don't understand that about God. Like, why is God causing that to happen? Why is God allowing that to happen? It may cause some of you uh, to be a little anxious, like, yeah, <clears throat> I don't want to go through that. And so part of what we're going to do, too, is kind of remind ourselves and lay the groundwork for a few truths and realities about God as we also think about what you should be doing in this moment and what we should, I should be doing in this moment and what we should be doing in this moment as we think about future moments. So Revelation 9, if you've got your device, if you've got a hard copy, open up. We're going to work through this in the next two weeks. And I'm going to read Revelation 9, <clears throat> excuse me, in its entirety, and then we'll walk back through it. Again, if it's your first Sunday here or you've never read the book of Revelation, it is a weird book. It's weird because it's so symbolic and there's so much symbolism and metaphor and it can be really confusing. Um, and so we're going to see a lot of that today and we'll try to understand it. And here's what the ninth chapter of Revelation tells us. And the fifth angel uh, blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion and would sting someone. And in those days, people will seek death and it will not find them. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. 
Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollon. If you're looking for a puppy's name... The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river of Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And then this is the last few sentences of where we're going to actually start. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What we've just read, if you've been with us, is describing this moment in biblical history and human history that's referred to as the tribulation. There's lots of ways to approach Revelation, as I've said countless times. We're taking the approach that the things that we're studying right now are things that are yet to come, things that are in the future. We're taking a futurist approach. And it's this period in biblical history and human history known as the tribulation. And the past few chapters that we're in have been describing all of these realities that are going to be experienced on earth during the tribulation. And part of the purpose of the tribulation is God is redeeming things and God is fixing things and God is trying to rescue things that are broken and in need of new re- renewal, right? He's making all things new. And in part of that process is to deal with the things that are broken and to punish the sin that causes pain and causes brokenness. And so these past few chapters have described part of those punishments and part of what like the reality on earth is going to be like. Could we be wrong about these things being in the future? Yes, we could be. There's three or four other views. I think futurist is best. It may not be, but that's the one we're taking. And verse 20 kind of picks up on a point where we left off last week where it says, right, the rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. Then verse 21, nor did they repent. And what we kind of saw last week and then start with today is there's two purposes to these judgments. All the stuff that's happening in the tribulation that we're hearing about, one purpose is to punish sin. It is to say, look, there is sin, and I am a just God, and I have to deal with what is not right. And so here is punishment for choices that are not right, that have caused pain. One purpose of what we're reading about is punishment. But these verses show us that there's this other purpose to it, right? This other purpose is to get people who are still making choices contrary to God, who are feeling the effects of their rebellion and their sin, to repent. 
right? They didn't repent. They didn't repent, which implies and shows that part of what was going on was to try to get them to repent, to try to get them to say, guys, what are you doing? You're facing these circumstances and these consequences with things around you are starting to unravel, and things are deeply unpleasant and painful, and it's God trying to get their attention and saying, stop. I want you to repent. I want you to turn back to me. This idea of repent, the word literally means to turn, to turn. It means you're walking in one direction, boom, 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 and it means you turn around and you walk the other way. It's this idea throughout Scripture of, hey, if you're walking in a pattern of sin, you turn from sin, and then you turn to God, and you respond to Jesus, and you're forgiven, and you are restored. God's using all of this stuff to punish, but He's also using it to try to bring people that He loves back to a relationship with Him or into a relationship with him. Our neighbor uh, got a golden retriever puppy named Charlie. Charlie is sweet. Charlie is an outside dog. Charlie has that electric fence dealio, right? Uh, I'm jealous of the people with the electric fence dealio because if we had one, we wouldn't have to chase our dogs throughout our neighbor's yard near the Mayor Parkway and into the muddy ponds. But we don't have an electric fence. But you know the deal with the dog and the electric fence and the shock collar, right? The dog is supposed to be in a certain area, in a certain place, and doing a certain thing. And the dog's got this shock collar. And when the dog starts to get beyond what it should be doing and the playground it should be, right, it gets a, a zap. And the zap does two things. The zap is like, whoa, I'm going to zap you a little bit because you shouldn't be going beyond this boundary. You're about to go do something that you shouldn't do. And so your choice to want to run, there's going to be a little zap. But the purpose of the zap is not to just randomly inflict pain or punishment. The purpose of the zap is so when the dog gets up to that line and about to go beyond where they should not go, they know they shouldn't be doing that, and then they come back to where it's good and where it's safe. My neighbor's electric fence literally borders the road. Would it be good for a golden retriever, sweet little puppy named Charlie to run into our street when the FedEx truck is coming? No, right? Our neighbor is not like some sadistic person who's trying to inflict pain on this puppy. Our neighbor is a person who's saying, hey, here are the boundaries to keep you safe. And man, you run and you play all within this boundary. You dig, you bark, you do whatever, right? You roll around in the mud, you scratch your ears with your, you do what here. But out here, man, if you get out here, it's not going to be good for you. So I'm going to do something to try to keep you from being there. And when you try to go there, I'm going to zap you a little bit. But the whole point is to bring you back to where it's good for you and safe for you to exist and to live and to play where you can be totally free within here. And what God is doing is he's saying to people like, hey, it's not good for you to be out there. And you may think your choices to run and to sin, and to chase it, and to do it, and to try it, and to prioritize it are going to work out for you. But ultimately, that thing that you think is going to make you free, you're going to be enslaved to. Ultimately, with sin, 
the thing that you and I chase that we think we will make us free is the very thing that ultimately will enslave us. If you don't think it's true, talk to any family who has somebody with an addiction in their families. If you don't think it's true, think about your own story with addiction. Think about stories of addiction. That's what we become enslaved ultimately to things that we think are free. And so what God's doing in this is in those, these plagues and these trumpets and all this stuff is he's saying, look, I'm going to have to zap you because you're going where you shouldn't be. But ultimately, I want you to come back to where it's good for you and where it's best. Because what we see from this in this heart of God with this amazing thing is God's heart. And here's the first observation, that God desires all people to know him and to avoid punishment for their sin. God desires all people to know him and to avoid punishment for their sin. And I apologize, the slides out of order, tech team, but if you pop up that verse, we, we see that from Second Peter. We see that from the purpose here. Here's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, his son's slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart. The story of the Bible is that God created everything. The story of the Bible is that there is a being who is bigger than us, that is outside of our reality, that is transcendent, that is all-powerful, but also all-loving, who thinks every single person he made has absolute value and worth. God adores every single person that he made, and he wants what is most meaningful for every single person. What God wants for you is what is most meaningful for you. What will most richly satisfy you ultimately, and what God knows is that is himself. And God desires for everybody to know him because he's loving. He's loving. And in addition to loving, he's also just. He's also just because he knows that sin causes pain. And you know that. For those of you who have been betrayed, for those of you who have had a parent just abandon you, for those of you who had a spouse treat you the way they shouldn't be treated, for a child who has a parent treat you the way, for someone you put your hope in somebody and they wounded you, all right, sin causes damage and pain, and a just God needs to deal what causes damage and pain. But amidst all of these heavy images, there's this refrain we keep seeing. There's this, there's this line that we keep seeing throughout these chapters that provides some comfort and some hope and some stability for those people who have responded to Jesus and have a relationship with God. And we see that in verse 4. We've read it, right? This idea we've seen before that goes along with this first uh, observation. This idea the locusts are coming out. We'll talk about them in a minute. And it says, they were given the power like the power of the scorpions of earth, but they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant on the tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If you've been with us for a few weeks, this is not a new phrase. If you've not been with us, this is like, what is all going on here? But what's being said here is, hey, there's going to be damage caused, but you can't damage, you can't hurt, you can't harm, you can't cause direct, you know, bad things to happen to people who are sealed by God. 
This links back to what we saw a few chapters ago where God acted to seal people who are believers in him, and there's all sorts of discussion about what that could be. But people who are followers of Jesus are sealed and protected, so they won't experience any of the direct thing that God allows to happen. And that is a follow-up to an earlier promise that God made to protect Christians from the wrath that is to come. And once again, what God is doing is he's affirming for people who believe in him, hey, you're gonna, this, is not gonna, this is not good, but man, if you believe in me, you can have a surety and certainty that you are never going to experience the punishment that I pour down on the earth. Here's the second observation from this, is this. And we've seen that a lot, but God is reminding us of this, reminding us of this. God will protect Christians from the punishments that he allows to happen on the earth. We've talked about this a lot. It doesn't mean that no bad thing will happen. It means they're never going to experience directly what God allows to happen. God is a God that wants all people to be in a relationship with him, and he's doing things to punish but also to bring back. And for people in a relationship with him, what God is saying is, look, the days are going to get hard. And there are going to be bad things that happen in the process of me fixing everything. But if you're in a relationship with me through Jesus, you can sleep well at night because I promise I'm going to shield you from what will happen. We've talked before a few weeks ago, is the shielding by removing? Could be, is the shielding by keeping us here? Could be. If you missed that, go back and watch it and you'll get to see us throw confetti on the stage like maniacs. I think, if you were here for that, you remember I threw a lot of confetti on the stage? I tried to be a nice team member, and the very next morning I came in, I had my coffee, I got a vacuum cleaner, and I vacuumed it all up. But apparently I broke the vacuum. <laughs> I was like so proud of myself, like, I'm not that pastor who makes a mess and doesn't clean. I was like, but I guess the paper and the engine, and I don't know. So anyway, <laughs> on to other things. So encouragement is that God will protect Christians from the punishment that he allows to happen on the earth. But then the question is, well, that's great, Peter, but we've read a lot of stuff. And what does the chapter suggest will be the experience for people who aren't Christians? For people who are not Christians, for people who have not responded in faith to Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross and have had forgiven of their sins and restored to God and all of their shame removed because of Jesus, for people who have not made that choice yet in this story, what's going to be the reality for them? What does the text tell us about that? Well, it has this language and there's seals and trumpets being used, and we're in this process where the trumpets are used to describe these events that will happen during the tribulation. And so last week we looked at uh, three or four trumpets, and this week we're at the fifth trumpet, and here's what we've already read. And as we read this again, we've got to think about, man, what's this star? What's this pit? And what are these locusts? Star, pit, locusts. What's that about? Here's, let's read it one more time, verse 1. So we're on the fifth trumpet, and again, this is just language that's being used literarily to describe the events. They're being linked with seals, they're being linked with trumpets, they're being linked with bowls. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So what is this deal about the star fallen from heaven to the earth? Well, there's lots of different options about what scholars and commentators think about this. Uh, some people think that this star, most people all agree that the star is a being or a person. 
So it is a person being described. They think, and it seems reasonable, that's a person being described because he's given a key. Could it be fit or uh, metaphorical, it could be, but it seems a person's being given a key. So then people, commentators, scholars, try to process through who is it. Some think that it's a fallen angel, right? So uh, a fallen angel, a spiritual being who's rebelling against God is the person being mentioned. Some think that it's a messenger from heaven. And so they're fallen from heaven, not because they've sinned and gotten kicked out, but they're fallen because meaning more like they've descended from heaven. Other people think it's a teacher or a human leader. I don't know. You know, it's, I, if I had to guess, I would think it's kind of here be one of these two things. Um, but those are some thoughts. And then they're given a key to uh, this bottomless pit. So what is this bottomless pit? Well, interestingly, throughout the Bible, there is reference um, to this area Right, the Bible describes realities that are not natural realities. The Bible describes supernatural things outside the realm of our natural existence. That's what's described here. And some people, throughout the New Testament and even Old Testament, there's reference to this uh, area, this place that has different terms, abyss, um, pit. And each time it's referenced, it's referred to as a place where specific demons, right, demons are just angels that said that they didn't want to follow God, they were going to rebel in align with Satan, and they're referred to as demons, where these demons are kept in punishment. Um, there's a few verses that discuss that. 2 Peter 2.4 says this, if you want to scribble this down in your margins or type it on your notes, for God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. This word hell can also be interpreted in different ways, linking back to this abyss, and committed to them to chains of glooming darkness to be kept until judgment. Next reference comes out of Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what seems to be happening throughout the Bible a bunch of angels rebelled against God because they rebelled for the same reason I rebel. And they rebelled for the same reason you rebel, which is you don't want somebody telling you what to do. That I want to be the guy calling the shots in my own life, and I don't want God to sometimes call the shots. And so I'm like, nope, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's the heart behind why they rebelled. And what the Bible seems to suggest is that when this group rebelled, there are some that are allowed to roam and to work, to deceive and destroy and to harm, and there's others who have done some other specific things who are being kept in this abyss, being kept in this pit. And when this person with this key opens up this pit, uh, what happens? It tells us what happens. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, verse 2, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And we've already read, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Those locusts are described in verses 7 through 10. We won't read them. Um, we've already read them. And like I mentioned with the two names, they have this leader, right? They have this king, uh, Abaddon or Apollon in verse 11. And interestingly, uh, that word means destroyer, destroyer. The person that's over this 
is a person who is committed to destruction, which raises this next question as we're knee-deep in all of this symbols and metaphors, like what could maybe these locusts be? Right? What, what is maybe being described as another punishment, another attempt to get people to repent that God will allow to happen on this tribulation is that somehow something is going to be released from somewhere by somebody. Don't you love the specificity? What did you learn about Revelation? I learned that somehow something's going to be released by somebody. Yes, because actually that's all we know with certainty. Right? What, what is I don't know. Here's what some people think the locusts are. Some scholars say actual locusts. Could be. Some say <clears throat> they're a symbolic description of something that we may or may not know. If you've ever read some of the books in the 70s and 80s, the late great planet Earth, I think the author of that book said that these locusts are Apache helicopters. Could they be? Uh, maybe. Um, because the description of verse 10, you know, the sound of the swarm, and he's like, those are the chopper blades. What, this is what we do now. The Apostle John, who is on house arrest on Revelation, is seeing something that he has never seen before. He is seeing something that in his realm is not in existence, and he's using all this figurative language to try to describe what it is that nobody's seen. And so it could be something we know of, or it could be something that we don't even know what this thing is, right? That, that a lot of, some people think it's demons. What's being described, that there's this moment where God just allows all sorts of spiritual darkness and chaos uh, and Satan to have a field day, and it's being described to this language of locusts. And then there's some people who think this is a reference to false teaching, they take it to, hey, this is really just pure symbolism to say that this is false teaching that's allowed to go out. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. We know that a loving God is trying to fix things that are broken, and that means dealing with things that are broken like sin, and there's punishment for that, but there's also the heart of God to draw people into repentance with him, and so he's causing things to happen on the earth progressively that are getting worse through this period of time known as the tribulation, and this is a description of somebody releasing something from some place where something bad is going to happen. And we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out, well, I don't think it's the Apache 4.12 model. I think it's the Blackhawk 72J. Who can, don't go there. We go there because we want certainty. But God could have told us with certainty exactly what this is. What God tells us with certainty is, hey, I want people to repent because I want all people to know me. And if you know me, what we know with certainty is whatever this is, you as a Christian will never experience. We know that with certainty. And we know with certainty that what will be experienced is not going to be pleasant because the effect of people will be what we've read in 5 and 6 that says these, whatever this is goes out and torment people for five months but doesn't kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Whatever this is, 
the people who experience it, whether it's demonic, whether it's spiritual, whether it's false teaching, whether it's some sort of technology we don't know about, whether it's a plague, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's sick, whatever it is, the people who experience this, it is, it is hopeless. It is hopeless. It is something that they're like, man, I'd rather, I want to die rather than continue to experience this because of everything that's happening. But that's not the end of what will be experienced because there's another trumpet. <clears throat> and this another trumpet is this sixth trumpet. And we read about that in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and here's what happens. And we're not going to necessarily try to unpack all this because, again, it's so symbolic. We don't know with certainty, but we get some big ideas about verse 14, how the sixth angel who had a trumpet said, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. That's interesting. Little footnote. Prepared for the month, the hour, the day. Well, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. And we're going to talk about this next week, right? Because next week we're going to pull a few more observations. And spoiler alert, one of them is going to come from here. But in case you're on the golf course or eating waffles and not here. Um, man, there's this amazing footnote about how God is in control of everything. Nothing is outside the control of God. Nothing is outside the sovereignty of God. Nothing is outside the knowledge of God. Nothing is outside the plan of God. And nothing is outside the power of God. Because he knew the day, the month, the hour, and the year when all of this was going to happen and he is in control of it. And like we said several weeks ago in this study, that is true for what's happening in Revelation 9, and it is true in my story, and it's true in your story. In your story, and in my story, nothing is outside the scope of God. God is more powerful than it all. God is sovereign over it all. God is in control of it all. And God knows every detail of it all even when you don't. And we know so little. We face so many things in life, and we're trying to control the timing. We're trying to control the answers. We're trying to be in power over it all, and we're not. And some of you this morning are discouraged because there's things that are happening in their life, and you're a control freak. Yeah. I, I, I hate when I say this because some of my staff use this against me, particularly one person. I kind of like to control things, right? <clears throat> I kind of do. I think it's because I'm a parent because I, geez, I shouldn't have just gone to this footnote. I'm in deep now. But here's what happens if you're a parent. You know that when your kid thinks they're cool enough not to have the top on their sippy cup anymore and they put it on the coffee table with your Apple remote, you know as a parent that either your dog or them or their siblings will be like, <laughs> splash, Apple remote ruin, give them 200 bucks to get a new one, right? And so what you do as a parent, you're like, don't put the juice there, put the lid there, move your peanut butter, don't put, you know, I try to, and I think it scarred me for life, right? Because I've tried to control everything so my Apple remotes don't get ruined and now I'm ruined, right? But some of you, you're discouraged because you're so used to controlling everything. And there's something in your story that you can't control. And it is wearing you out. And the more it stresses you, the more you want to control it. And the more you want to control it, the more you realize you can't control it, and the more it stresses you out. And the more it stresses you out, the more you want to control it. And the more you want to control it, the more you realize you can't control it, and it stresses you out. And it goes on and on and deeper and deeper. 
And what you need to understand from a passage of Scripture, I think I'm preaching next week's sermon, so maybe you can just have waffles and not come back. Uh, What we need to know from a passage of Scripture with all sorts of language is the character of God that you're not in control. But it's okay because He is in control. And you can fight that. You can rebel against it. You cannot agree with it and try to grab control or you can surrender to his control and trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Whether you choose to trust him or not, he's still in control. Whether you choose to trust him or not, you can't change the timing. You can't ultimately. And so, man, what we see woven into this very odd language is a God who knows everything, is in control of everything, is orchestrating everything in the story of Revelation, in the story of your life. These four angels released. God knows the day, right? And then we see what happened on that specific day that God is sovereignly knows of. They were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million if I did my math right on my iPhone calculator. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses. And then there's all this symbolic language. And then he repeats this idea in verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. In this judgment, a third of humanity is killed. Do we know exactly what all these things are? We don't. Some people think it's an actual physical army of 200 million people, 200 million actual soldiers. Some people think it's supernatural. Some people think it's, again, symbolic of plagues or disasters. We don't know, but we know that what the outcome tells us is that it significantly impacts the population of the earth. It brings us to our third observation. We saw as the second observation that God will protect Christians from punishments that he allows to happen on the earth. God will protect Christians from these punishments that he allows, but then we also see in the text that what God has chosen to reveal to us is this, for the people who are not in a relationship with him, their reality on earth in the last day will become increasingly and progressively more terrible and hopeless. That is not because the people who are Christians are somehow superior people of better value. No. It's because we all are on equal value of being separated from God, and we've all chosen what we're going to try to do to make that separation up. And some people, realizing their brokenness, have turned to Jesus and said, man, I know I'm not good enough to do it. I trust that you are my substitute who was punished for me, so I don't have to be. They are not inherently better people. They just realize their brokenness and they're turning to Jesus for it. And then there's other people who are like, no, I'm going to fix it myself. I don't, I'm not, blah, blah, blah. And they're choosing to fix the brokenness and the separation somehow. And because of that, because there's things that need to be dealt with because of the sin, that their reality will become increasingly and progressively more terrible and hopeless. And the heart of God is that he wants all of them to know what is most meaningful and rich and enjoyable, which is a relationship with him, and to repent. But that's the third observation. And next week... We're going to walk through two more observations, but this week, 
What we've been told in chapter 9 is what's going to happen in Revelation. We've going to be told, here's what's coming in the future. We're, going to be told, we're being told, hey, there's a storm coming. There's a hurricane out there. And the question for you and for me is this. In light of what we've learned about the future moments, what should you and I do in this moment? For you and I, for those of us in the room who are believers in Jesus, and if you're not, I, man, I'm so grateful you come. I say that every week. But, man, I, to walk into a church where you don't believe what they're saying and to come is so... Uh, we're grateful that you do that, and we hope you're learning at least what we believe in if you don't. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, and the question is this, what well, we've learned about for future moments, what should we be doing in this moment? In light of what's coming one day, what steps should we be making this day? In light of this, what do we do now? Well, you know what we do now? We do what Jesus says. In light of what's coming in the future, in light of what we know about future moments, you know what we do in this moment? We do what Jesus says. I love this verse, and interestingly, I read it again this week in my own time. It's different places in the gospel. We're going to use the reference out of Luke. And Jesus is preparing to send out, to commission people. He's gathered a group of people, and he says this word. The, right, he said to them, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Right? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In light of what people will experience one day, right? in light of there being tons of people, many of whom even haven't heard about Jesus, what we should do in this moment is what Jesus tells us to do, and he says, look, and I love where he starts, pray. Pray for God to send people. Here's the first thing to do in this moment in light of future moments. Pray for God to send people to those people who don't not know him. Pray for God to send people to those people who do not yet know him. Maybe when they heard that, they're like, oh, that's easy. We'll put on some Phil Wickham. We'll get some coffee. We'll have us a little prayer meeting. We're good, right? First place to start is pray. But Jesus doesn't end with that because in the very next word he says to them is this. What's that word? Go. It's a really interesting sequence. Hey, pray for God to send somebody. Oh, and by the way, y'all go. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if it just kind of ended there? But what, what he's saying is, hey, you guys pray. But man, the extent of what I'm asking you to do is never just ending with prayer. The extent of what I'm sending you out to do is you yourself go. 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 And look at this. Yeah, is the world a crazy world? Yeah, right? But that's okay, because, you know, look what Jesus says. Hey, and as you go, just know it's not always going to be easy. You're going to be like little lambs being sent out. Pray and go. The second thing to do in this moment, in light of future moments, is if you're a believer of Jesus, what Jesus tells us to do is you go to people who do not yet know about him. You go. One of Jesus' last words, right, is in Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, teaching them, go, go, go. Your walk with Jesus must include coming to gather with other believers on blue chairs and being in fellowship with Christians. Your walk with Jesus, and I'm going to get an email, but it's okay because I love you guys, was never meant to be lived on your couch with your remote by yourself. You might think it is, but that's not what the book says. Book uses words like, hey, don't forsake being together with other people in the body because there's something about this right here that I can't get by myself listening to a podcast when I'm running. Because I need you to look me in the eye and say, bro, I love you. Or man, I know you're having a hard time. Let me just fist bump you because I'm praying for you. We need each other. Your walk with Jesus can never be lived without gathering together in a local assembly with other Christians for corporate worship, but your walk with Jesus was never meant to end just gathering together with other Christians. Your walk with Jesus must also include going out to people who don't yet know Jesus and have hope. It's not a one or the other. And interestingly, some of the people who do the best job sitting on the blue chairs, 42,000 Bible studies a week some of y'all are in. That's amazing. But do you ever talk to a non-Christian? Nope. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here and just a few practical thoughts, right? Our vision is perfect, purposely includes the phrase, hey, we want to reach an impact with God's love and truth both personally and collectively. We want to do things as a church. That's why we do Trunk or Treat. That's why we do Missions Trips. That's why we do Summer Spectacular. That's why we do Lego 500. That's why we're so blessed to be able to serve our community together as a body that way and show God's love and truth. But you individually also have a role to play. So, You've already started taking pictures of it. Here are some things that we can do today. You can start where Jesus starts by praying for someone who you know who doesn't yet have hope. You can pray. You can identify that person and just pray for them. You can pray for our missionaries who are serving locally and globally, and we promoted this a few weeks ago, and they all disappeared. There's about nine or ten more left, but hey, we ain't run out of printer paper yet. Here's a prayer guide of all of our missionaries. You know what would be great to do if you're a family, right? I'm loving our parenting class. It's amazing. Well, it's great, despite whenever I facilitate it, right? But you could open up one of these, and every night before your kid goes watch Bluey on TV before bed, you could pray for a missionary. We, we got a bunch of missionaries in here. We are so privileged. The largest number of unchurched people are in rural villages in Southeast Asia. And we've recently been able to partner with an amazing organization. Your money is going to support an amazing organization that is committed to, man, we're going to get there. And we can pray for that. Pray for our missionaries who are doing it. Pray, like God said, for future people to go and go. Pray for God to raise up future people from Calvary Church to maybe go to Southeast Asia to have a role in the story of what God's doing there. And pray for people to have a heart for non-believers where they are. 
on their sports teams, in their neighborhoods, in their book clubs, on their golfing buddies, on their bowling leagues. Pray, next point, for God to give you an open door to have a spiritual conversation. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you said, man, God, look, this whole evangelism thing is intimidating, it's scary, I don't want to do it, I don't like to do it, I don't know how to do it, but I'm just going to need you to open up a door for me to do it. When, when was the last time you prayed that? And I am pretty confident if you prayed it, that aligns with the heart of God. I would be surprised if he didn't respond. Equip yourself for when God does respond to that prayer. We give you all free uh, subscriptions to Right Now Media. If you go on Right Now Media, this streaming online service, you will find a bunch of different approaches to evangelism, to navigating cultural issues, and equip yourself for when God may answer your prayer. And then when he does, the last thing is do what Jesus says to do. Go and engage. Go and engage. Because as Jesus tells us about what's coming in future moments, he's also told us what we should be doing in this moment. And why would we not want to do what Jesus wants us to do? Next week, we're going to finish up chapter 9. Um, and continue to work through it, and uh, let me pray, and then we'll sing our song and have our discipleship classes. Father, uh, thank you for revealing things, and these are hard things, Father, and I just pray as we work our way through them, we won't miss uh, what we do know of how you've promised to care for us and protect us. We won't miss your heart. We won't miss hope and what's coming. And so, Father, I do pray that for those of us who are followers of you, you will give us open doors this week. I pray that out of Calvary Church, that you will raise up people who will say, you know what, God's tugging on me to go somewhere to serve him in some specific way, and that they will respond despite all the fears to what you're calling them to do in terms of missions locally and globally. And I pray that in Calvary Church, Father, you will ignite in the hearts of three, four, five hundred people of passion to serve you and represent you well right where we are as well. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Amen. We're going to respond with a song that Amy uh, introduced for us called This Is Our God. This is who he is. He 
our God, this is what He does. He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Remember that fear that took our breath away. So weak that we could barely pray But he heard every word, every whisper And now those altars in the wilderness And tell the story of his faithfulness Never once did he fail and he never will This is our God, this is what He does, He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did, He did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus Who pulled me out of that pit He did, He did Who paid for all of our sin Nobody but Jesus Who rescued me from that grave Yahweh, Yahweh Who gets the glory of praise Nobody but Jesus Who rescued me from that grave Yahweh, Yahweh, who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Him. This is our God. This is who He is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what He does. He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim. This is our God, King Jesus. again for worshiping with us. It's really been a pleasure. We're actually not done with our service. If you got, if y'all can just take a seat.